based on my calculations from all that we have heard and sung this morning, we are at least 100 amens behind. So can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of John. We'll be in chapter 20, looking at verses 1 to 18. This is John's account of the empty tomb. Again, chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with uh, the other disciple And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture and and that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that we would see you, that you would change us. We ask this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about hope, and as one pastor theologian defines it, he says, biblical hope, different than any other hope, but biblical hope is not an uncertain desire, it is a confident expectation. Biblical hope is not an uncertain desire, it is a confident 
expectation. When the scriptures speak of hope, it is not often in the ways that we tend to think about hope and how we hope and wish that we might do something or whatever it is this day or that it might rain or which creates this sort of uncertain desire and expresses that. Rather, hope is certainty delayed. And because of this, biblical hope always leads to action. For hope that is not real hope, what just doesn't send us anywhere. And that is one of the things we're going to see about this account that John gives us, is that hope that does not move us to action, like love, as we saw earlier this week, is not hope at all. But John is trying to tell us something different, that because of the empty tomb and thus the resurrection, because it is real, we have a real hope that does send us into action to go love as Christ has asked us to go love, as he has loved us. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text and I want us to see that because the empty tomb is real, we also have a real hope, a hope that is historical or factual, a hope that is personal, and a hope that is final because it is secured by another. So three things, a hope that is historical, a hope that is personal, and a hope that is final because it is secured by another. Let's take that first one, a hope that is historical. If you were an eyewitness to something, and perhaps maybe you've had this happen to you, uh, and a reporter came and asked you to describe something, uh, but, but, but if you were for sure an eyewitness of something that was just incredible, that, that, that you had never seen before, how would you talk about it? What are the things that you would say? What are the sounds and the smells that would come into that description for you? And more important, what would you want them to remember? Growing up in East Tennessee, tornadoes were not particularly common, but when they did happen, you could always count on a good interview by the local news to those who experienced it. And what's clear, at least from my research, from those interviewed by local news afterwards, is that all tornadoes have one thing in common. They sound like a freight train. Maybe you've experienced this as well. It didn't matter if you lost your house, if you lost a car or your dog. All the people interviewed throughout my life's existence in East Tennessee, and perhaps beyond then as well, have all concluded that tornadoes sound like freight trains. And even if you had three or four eyewitnesses that would describe different aspects of what that tornado was like, all of them would tell you the exact same thing as to what it sounded like. Years later, when I would have my own personal closest encounter with an actual tornado, sure enough, I found myself thinking, this sounds like a freight train. Well, when we think about the four gospels in the New Testament, we need to remember that they are four eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. And while all of them share that experience from different perspectives, right, choosing to highlight certain things and not others, there are some events so certain and so clear that they are included in all four Gospels. And the empty tomb is one of those events. And while each Gospel writer takes a different perspective, choosing to tell it from this point of view or another, everyone agrees about one thing. The tomb was empty. In other words, what the sound of a tornado was to those eyewitnesses uh, growing up in East Tennessee is the empty tomb to these gospel writers. Here's what's clear. 
Here's what we remember. Here's what we saw and heard and what we testify to, which is to say that it is historical, that it is factual, meaning that it happened in time and space. And two things that point us in that direction in John's account are one, that John, the author of this gospel, was actually there. But two, the things he chooses to include in this account lead us to see the factual nature of this account. First, John was there that day. John tells us that it was the first day of the week or Sunday, which would mean that Saturday, the day before, the Sabbath for Jewish believers would have prevented travel to that tomb. Saturday Saturday would have also been a, a day of grieving and sadness for those who knew and followed Jesus. But it was also Jewish custom that those who mourn, mourn at the tomb during those first three days because it was the soul of the deceased that was thought to still be present. Now, this is not what Scripture teaches. This was just the custom. All of this, though, is enough to bring those closest to Jesus to the tomb that morning. And so, according to John, a woman named Mary Magdalene, who we will talk about later, approaches the tomb, as the text says, and sees that the stone had been rolled away. She immediately assumes that the body of Jesus has been taken, and rightfully so. Grave robbery in that day was such a problem that Rome prescribed the death penalty for any who would come and disturb a tomb. And so Mary, without looking into the tomb, she turns and what? And she runs to get help. And who does she go to, according to John? She gets Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Who is that? Thank you. During Friday's service, we read from the Gospel of John in several places where he mentioned a disciple and then the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And May, my oldest, had written questions down on her bulletin, one of those being, why don't they just name that disciple? Good listener, good question. We believe that this was John himself, mainly because he tells us this later in chapter 21, verses 20 to 24. This is the way he chooses to mention himself by mentioning, uh, without mentioning himself and the things that he experienced. And what this means though, for our purposes today, is that he was there. He was actually there that morning. Beginning in verse three, Mary had gone to get Peter and John or the disciple as we said that Jesus loved. And then we read that they both what? Ran to the tomb, but that Peter got to the tomb first. This race between the two disciples, just in case you're wondering, has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus or the tomb. It is one of the most pointless details of any account. As, again, why put this in here? The only reason that John includes it is because it happened. This is what he remembers. Luke will also mention Peter running to the tomb, but not as the way John describes it because John was running with Peter. Again, all this points to the reality and the fact that John was there, an eyewitness to this account, which gives this credibility, gives this empty tomb story a place rooted in time and space and in history. But it's not so much that he was there that really uh, turns the page for me as much as it is what he chooses to record here. And as we continue in this first point, we see that it's actually what he decides to tell us that gives this account credibility. John's biggest problem, like the other, like the other uh, disciples who wrote the Gospels, uh, in creating credibility 
for this event is that they have chosen a woman to be their primary and first eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. If John wanted his readers to discredit his testimony, he's done a wonderful job by making Mary the primary witness. But John doesn't seem to care about that. And why would you, right? If something is true, it's true. No matter what cultural norms exist, if something is true, it doesn't need to be propped up or to be polished over or sanitized. This is what happened. And it simply needs to be told. And that is what John is doing. Many suggest that it's clear then that someone took the body as we consider other theories about why the tomb might be emptied, right? Either a disciple or a Roman official. But John's account eliminates these possibilities. As we go back to verse 5, stooping down, he, John, saw the linen cloth lying there, the text says. But he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. John clearly wants his listeners to pay attention to the cloths. Four times he makes reference to them. If anyone had taken the body, they would have for certainly taken the cloths as well. Those would have been worth a lot of money, but more importantly, they were the proof that you had the body in the first place. To leave them would have been foolish. And for John, this is no grave robbery. There is something else going on. And as we travel with him, he wants us to see that the cloths have been handled by somebody. And while the cloths that would <clears throat> have covered Jesus' body are laying there, where his body laid, the, the face cloth is folded up in a separate place by itself, indicating that someone had been there. Someone took the time to fold up this cloth and put it in a different place. What John and Peter are seeing as they look into that tomb for sure is a very perplexing scene. It is not all making sense to them at this point. They are asking themselves, who takes a body but not the burial cloths? Who takes the time to fold the head cloth and place it in a separate place of rest? Because of this detail, many suspect then that the disciples or someone on the inside then must have removed this body. Forgetting the stone would have required several people to move it. The problem with this theory is, as we all know, as the, as the church progresses, right? Why would disciples in this day, John included, offer themselves, offer their lives, offer an unbelievable amount, or should I say, invite an unbelievable amount of suffering and a horrible death, knowing that all of this was a hoax? You and I both know that we would go along with something up to a point. But to the point that we knew that it wasn't real, I'm out. I'm out. Yet Paul, for example, is willing to be jailed, beat, cursed, and driven near death for the sake of the gospel. Well then, some conclude as we continue to analyze the, the facts here of John's account, it must have been the Roman officials or some other officials in some other place, okay, but when the church continues to grow as we go, get into the book of Acts and as we read of Paul's letters and as it continues to threaten the power structures of that day and other leaders uh, through the spread of the gospel, 
All of that could have been easily brought to an end by producing a body. In other words, Roman officials would love to have had nothing else but a body to produce in these moments, to, to stop what it is has come this far already, only if they had it. Now, there is much more that could be said that lends itself to the historical credibility for John in the empty tomb. But suffice it to say that John's being there and thus the details that he chooses to include give us confidence that the hope that we have in the empty tomb, in the resurrection, it is a historical hope. It is a factual hope. It's simply what John saw and what Peter saw as well. And John wants you to see it too. Excuse me. John wants you to see it too. Four times, four times he uses a verb that is translated Saul. And it is by Mary, Peter, and John. They all saw it. The, questions beco- the question becomes for us, are we willing to see it? And not by sight, but by faith. And just a few verses over, Jesus will say to Thomas, doubting Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the first point. Next, we see that our hope is not just historical or factual, but that it is personal as well. Other gospel writers mention several women who went to the tomb early that morning. John decides to zero in on a woman who has been following Jesus and has been with him for quite a while. Her name is Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, as we are familiar with her. We first encounter her in Luke's account in chapter 8, when we are told of several women who started to follow Jesus and offer their gifts and resources to him and to the followers of Jesus. We are also told that Mary Magdalene had seven demons come out of her, probably a reason why she decides to stick with Jesus. Verse 10 to 18, though, back in John's account, are all about Mary's experience at the tomb. Nobody takes this vantage point but him. At some point, it's clear that Mary has come back to the tomb after some time, and she is what? She is crying. She is weeping, stooping down to look in. She sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Now, we have to remind ourselves that to our ears, that can sound a little disrespectful, but it's not. It's actually a more endearing phrase. Just our translation doesn't, uh, our English translation doesn't allow for it. We can remember Jesus actually saying the same thing to his mother um, in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana before he turns water into wine saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? Either that's the most disrespectful thing to say to your mother or we're missing something in translation. I'll choose the latter. In the same way, though, Mary is asked why she is crying, in which she replies, because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. From here, the two angels say no more, perhaps noticing that Jesus is actually behind her. Verse 14, we read that Mary turns around and sees Jesus standing in there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Well, we don't fully understand this, right? It is a typical response, as we read in the other gospel accounts, of those who first see and encounter the resurrected Jesus. 
And as we think about last Easter, Easter which we all remember, uh, we looked at the account of Luke and the road to Emmaus, right? And how these two uh, disciples or followers were, were, were talking about the events of the day um, and discouraged because they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. When all of a sudden somebody walks up behind them and tells them, what is going on? Tell me these things. And of course, it's Jesus and they are not able to recognize him. But as Luke's account finishes, when is it that they are actually able to recognize them? It's when he sits down with them and he prays with them and he breaks bread with them. So it is with Mary, who thinks at first that Jesus must be the gardener. And she asks, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will take him away. But verse 16, Jesus says one word, Mary. And she turns around and immediately knows that it, is his, that it is him. Leon Morris says this about this verse. With a masterly economy of language, John tells how Mary came to know that it was the Lord. Jesus utters but one word, her name. Bruce Milne writes, one word which remade her world and transformed her life forever after. And the word was her own name. This is a memorable confirmation of the personal nature of our Lord's dealing with his people. Indeed, because the empty tomb is real, we not only have a hope that is historical, but that is actually personal. And not just personal to Mary, who had been crying over the loss of her Lord, but it's actually personal to Jesus as well. And that's my point. You can think of something as being personal in two ways, right? One, it's personal to you. And we always say, especially with matters of faith, that my faith and my hope is personal to me. It means something to me. We often fail to remember as Christians is that our faith and thus our hope is personal to God as well. He is, friends, the good shepherd. John has shown us this. The good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and they know his voice. Only in Christianity is this hope personal to God himself towards those who believe. And how personal is this to God? Personal enough to give up everything that he is and has. If it means securing the treasure of his people if you remember from Thursday this week, we mentioned the parable of the hidden treasure in the field from Matthew's gospel in chapter 13. And it's the parable of the man who, who, who finds this treasure and, and, and desires it in the field. So he sells all of his possessions in order to purchase the field, in order to purchase and, and obtain the treasure. And we discussed about how we often read that parable and we think of ourselves as the man who uh, we should care enough about God's kingdom to give away everything that we have in order to possess it. And that's true. We shouldn't let anything get in the way of us pursuing the kingdom of God. But what John encourages us to do is to think about that parable in terms of Jesus himself being the man, the one who would give up all that he is, all that he has, in order to obtain that field, that treasure, which is you. Nowhere would we ever dare to think of our faith and thus our hope as being personal to the God of all creation, to the one who deserves all glory, praise, and honor. Yet this God knows your name. And wouldn't you think that it would make more sense 
if I were coaching John at this point, to have Mary the mother of Jesus in this moment. Or perhaps some other disciple like Peter or the one that Jesus loved himself. Someone other than Mary Magdalene, who is certainly worthy of such an encounter. But you get my point. Perhaps what John is telling us is there is no hierarchy. There is no seniority in the kingdom of God. All know the Lord and the Lord knows them. Which means that at no no moment for Jesus did he not have your name in mind too as the treasure or the reward for securing the field that the empty tomb promises us this morning. Jesus knows your name, friends. He knows who you are. It's just as personal to him as it is to us. The question then becomes, can we, as his followers, create space, not just in our head only, as we wrestle with the facts and the historicity of this event, but can we create space in our hearts for a God as big as this to be as personal as well? Lastly, because the, tomb is in, because the empty tomb is real, we have a hope that is final because it is secured by another. Because the empty tomb is real, our hope is not only historical, nor is it not only personal, but it literally rests in the hands of another, which is, friends, the peace of God to those who believe. We do not have enough time to unpack this, but just after Mary recognizes Jesus, she must have lunged to his feet or perhaps hugged him in a way that any of us would have had we been grieving over the loss of someone that we loved. But then Jesus has this strange response in verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. As abrupt as it reads, Jesus is not pushing Mary away or in some way scolding her because she is not supposed to be touching him. Rather, what John is doing is pointing us to where the security of our hope truly lies. And that is in Jesus' ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father and to reign over all things. Because friends, without a reigning resurrected Jesus, we have no assurance that all will be well. Go, Jesus tells Mary, and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is saying to Mary what he has said back in chapter 14, Mary, there will be a time for rejoicing and embracing, but not as you see me today. For I go to prepare a place for you. Somebody knows the rest. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again. And take you to myself. Thank you. So that where I am, you may be also. Do not let your heart be troubled. See, it's not enough 
that the tomb is empty and Jesus has resurrected from the grave. The ascension, according to John, is the final movement in this act of redemption that says what I've done in atoning for sins and defeating death, I secure for you as well in my reigning over all things. It is this resurrection account that in, an encounter, if we are reading John's gospel as a whole, that draws us back to another resurrection back in John 11, the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And in that account, you have, you have Lazarus, unlike Jesus, coming out of the grave still wrapped in linen cloths. But also, unlike Jesus, you have Lazarus has no power over the grave. Lazarus is simply the object, the object of Jesus' power in this moment. It's not said much, but as wonderful as I'm sure that it was for Lazarus and his sisters to have him back, Lazarus would have to die again, as any human being must. Like Lazarus, then, all of us, all of us are beholden to the power of Jesus for resurrection, which means our hope is not something we secure in and of ourselves but is a hope secured by another. And this, friends, is the best news that you have to hear this morning. Jesus could have easily said to Mary or to any that day, well, I did my part. He even could have said, Mary, if you believe and have enough faith, perhaps one day you too will resurrect just like me. But instead, Jesus literally says, I am the resurrection. I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back so that where I am, there you may be also. It is all about who he is and it is all about what he is doing. And because that's true, our hope is final. Final. Because it is secured by and rests in the hands of another. A good friend of mine who's a pastor tells the story of going hunting with his dad and, and he, what he remembers about this is that he, they would get up in the morning obviously and, and go out into the woods and get to the stand and his dad would crawl up into the stand uh, by this rope and then, and then he would hold on real tight to the rope as, 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 as he you know, went up into the tree stand with his dad. And as my friend recalls the story, he thinks about how uh, he used to think that it was actually him and, and his grip on the rope that was what was allowing him to get up and into the tree stand. Then he realized one day and remembered, oh, that wasn't really the case. The truth of the matter was is that my dad had wrapped that rope around me numerous times over and over and tied it into really tight knots so that what, he was, what was really going on was that he was the one lifting me up no matter how hard I held on to that rope. For John, the ascension where Jesus is going, right, the Holy Spirit that will come as evidence of his, of his ascension uh, later is the final knot in the rope, as it were, that is wrapped around and around and around you and is tied into really tight knots that ultimately secures your hope this morning. Hold on to it as tight as you want, but the real power is in the hands, what, of another, in Jesus, not in ourselves. And friends, I need to know that this morning. I need to know that my hope is secured by another, by Jesus, not because I'm weak, although I am, or not because I'm not serious about following Jesus, I am, but because hope that is real, and listen to this, hope that is real is hope that always rests outside of ourselves. 
it must be bigger than ourselves. Whatever you're holding on to this morning, whatever it is that you're hoping in, and we all hold on to something, whether we realize it or not, if it's not coming from someplace outside of you, it is not big enough and therefore not worthy enough to hope in. The empty tomb tells us that we have a hope that comes from God, that rests in the hands of Jesus, thus is secured by another. And in his hands, it is in his hands, that Jesus asked Mary and that he asked the disciples and he asked you this morning to rest in, to trust him, because this is where real hope is found. These are the three things that we see from John's account, that because the tomb is empty tomb is real, we have a real hope, a hope that is historical, personal, and final because it rests in the arms of another. If we're thinking about application, I'll give you one point this morning before we dismiss. Hope that is real, as I said earlier, that is true hope, always sends us into action. And if you remember from Thursday as well, it's kind of like love. Yeah, these two things kind of hold each other together until we go to be with the resurrected Jesus, or until we go see him face to face. But true hope always sends us into action. And if we step back for just a second, this is exactly what John is doing, isn't it? Willing to risk his reputation, willing to risk um, humility, humiliation, by recording such ridiculous accounts in a gospel, willing to submit himself to death by saying that he is a follower of Jesus. Again, if the disciples took Jesus' body, there is no hope and no one risks their life for what is untrue. What about for us? Right? Jesus, though, is not asking us because of the hope of the empty tomb, the hope of the resurrection, to go write another account, to go write another eyewitness account. We can't do that. What is he asking us to do? And I'll draw us back to his commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. We talked about this earlier this week, that the only way that you can do this is to know that you are first loved. But we only know that his love is real and that he is real if the tomb is empty. And so here, hope and love collide, which means that this side of glory, love and hope work together to send us into the lives of others, into the places of this world where darkness and evil are most present, into the places of this world where sadness and suffering runs deepest to be the love of God for others, to be light for others, to, to show people that this hope is real. This is what has always sent the church into the most difficult of places even to go die because their hope is real. The question for us is what are the areas in our lives where we are living that testify that the tomb is not empty? And I would, I would offer that as application for us this morning. Yes, there are a lot of things that we do, but what we need is we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the places, to the darkness of this world that we are avoiding and thus telling the world that the tomb is not empty because the hope that I have is not big enough to go into those places. And for some of those, and I could just be getting up in the morning and getting out the door. I'm not trying to create a grand sort of we need to go we need to go somewhere and do something big. This could just be getting out of the door this morning. 
But for others, it's loving neighbors in ways that we choose not to. For others, it's, it's, it's noticing injustices around us because this is what Jesus has come to restore. And if the church of all places is not willing to go into those places, all it is saying is that this hope is not real and our tomb is not empty. My suggestion for us this morning is to be willing enough, to be bold enough to pray and ask God to show us, reveal to us the places where we are saying by our actions that this hope is not real, that we may then become the people he has asked us to be, to go shine light into dark places, to go show the world that this hope is in fact real. Because that's what real hope does, is it sends us into action. Would we pray that God would reveal to us as a church the places of our heart that live as though the tomb is not empty and thus live without real hope so that we would be stretched to go into dark places to love as Jesus has loved. I'll end with this. As many of you uh, might know, I, I, our family loves the planet Earth and uh, the series, the BBC series that came out many years ago. And I've uh, been, been holding this story for a while because it's the best story um, in, in, in any one of those BBC Planet Earth um, episodes. Feel free to try to change my mind after the service. But this is the episode of The Jungles. And in it, and I have no idea how we captured this, but in it, we are exposed to this fungus we don't know where it comes from, but it destroys everything that it comes into contact with. And for this particular episode, there is this ant colony, this ant community. Um, and, and as the, the cameras are rolling, what happens is this fungus gets embedded into an ant. And it drives the ant crazy after a while, to which it essentially clings on to whatever is nearby. And then in days later, this fungus begins to uh, poke through the ant. It's kind of gross. And then it disperses thousands of spores that thus go and contaminate the rest of the community, killing out anything that it touches. But what the BBC was able to capture, and this is coming back to, I don't know how they were able to do this, is that for some, some reason or another, the community is able to identify one who would go and take the infected ant because it kind of walks around like it's drunk. And so they know that there's something wrong with it. And they identify one to go take that infected ant to go march it out of the community as far away as possible to the point where it's about to bore through itself and it clings on to whatever it has. And then it, the fungus comes through and the spores go out, but it doesn't get onto the community. Community of ants say they survive, they live. But for that to happen, right, the one has to die. Right? This is exactly what Jesus has come to do for you. And thus rest assured, your hope and salvation. Right? He is the one who has gone outside the city, as it were, right? who has gone to take on right, all of the evils all the evils of the, the spores of evils that are your sin, my sin, that are the injustices of this world, both that we see and we don't see. And he takes them on himself. He lets them take him down so that you, the church, his community, 
might have the hope of knowing all will be well. That's how he loves, friends. And because of him, we have a real hope as well. May the love of Christ for you always be the hope you rest in today and until you see him face to face. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this account in John. We're thankful for the details in it, the ones that have no point in being there and the ones that draw us to your heart as well. Would we be drawn to you through this account? Would we see that your love for us, born on a cross, but vindicated in resurrection, and now that you ascend and are reigning over all things, simply means that your resurrection mattered, and thus our hope is secure. We thank you for what you have done for us. Change us now by your Holy Spirit. Would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.